In this lesson of our course on Lean UX, we look at how to integrate testing into a website redesign project without delaying it or spending a lot of money. This course is free thanks to the support of Balsamic. And welcome to this audio course slash podcast on UX and doing UX in a lean way. This course is hosted by myself and joining me as always is Marcus Lillington. Hi, Marcus. Morning, Paul. How are you? So you said just before we came on the show that you you were, you wanted a good moan. And yes. Obviously, just moaning to me was not enough. You wanted no, to moan I to, mo- to the I audience. I to moan to the world. It's actually quite relevant, really, because basically okay. being being of an extrovert nature... I believe mm. I'm not sure the the exact um, the wording of a definition of an extrovert, but you you kind of define yourself by interacting with others or something yeah. like that. I think that's it. You that's get that. energy and mm. it, it it kind of renews you spending yeah. time with other people. Yeah. So being in lockdown really really yeah. gets to me. All right, I bet must be awful. Stand it. Um, and this morning, well, I, up until. Today is 26th of November. We in the UK are looking to come out of full lockdown next week and move to a tiered system. And for some reason in my head, I figured, I I thought it was logical that the default for the country was going to be tier one, which is when pubs are opening and it's still restricted, only six people and all that kind of thing. But pubs are open. um, You can mix indoors so the band could get back together again that I play in, all this kind of thing. But it seems that actually, no, that's going to be... Uh, quite the opposite. Well, tier two is likely to be the default, and hardly anywhere is going to be tier uh, okay. one. I've just discovered, so I'm miserable, basically. Girl, so, how you said that this was relevant? How is this relevant to a web design podcast? No, it's relevant. Uh, it's relevant to me being an extrovert. I think that's what. I was oh, I to see. Say. Yes, right. That was which we weren't so, no, talking web, web about. Design, but that's who, fine. who cares about web design? Oh, something. Like that, <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> said the man who, who said to me before we got on, get on, who we got, who we turned on record. I want to retire. So, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think I, 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 one of the things that we're talking about is what we're going to do after this season, um, and it, it's looking increasingly likely that we're just going to give up on the whole idea of talking about web design and just end up wittering about pointless rubbish. But we'll. We've still got to work some of that out, so we'll we'll see what happens. But for I quite, now, I quite like the idea of a grumpy old man podcast. I must admit, yeah, I do as well. I've got to say, um, after however many years of talking about web design, yeah. I mean, who cares anymore? Really, it's all this done is, now, isn't it? It's fixed. Well, no, no, it's all no. It's not that it's all done. I, I'm not quite as cynical as as you're being. But I, I just feel it's somebody else's problem now, isn't it? Young people have got to kind of make the, the next web. We've screwed up this web. You know, when I started, I had all of these utopian dreams about it being a place that all people could come together and overcome their differences because they'll be exposed to people from different cultures and different backgrounds. I dreamt about a world where the accessible could access information and services that they've never been able to access before. And instead, we get Trump and Twitter, you know. Mm. I know. So really, at least we're getting rid of Trump. Well, that's something, yeah. Uh, I'm not sure we're getting rid of Trumpism, but um, <laughs> anyway. but we are definitely getting rid of him. We, we might have, we need to be careful because we might have people listening to this show that are as are Trump supporters. Other opinions uh, and, and are valid too. That's fine. Absolutely, part of the problem here is that people won't accept other people's opinion. Um, yeah. But I can still say I can't stand the man. That's my absolutely. opinion. Absolutely, yes, of course, that is fine. So, um. Yes. What are we talking about today? So, so uh, after just saying we don't care about web design anymore, we do really. Well, we do really. Yeah, it does pay the bills at least, and I, I think that's something that we need to acknowledge. So, what we've been doing over this season, which is is a year long because we're we're only doing these podcasts once a month now, so it is a twelve part course mm-hmm. on lean UX, which really is is focusing on how we can apply user experience design principles in a way that is achievable for the majority of web designers out there rather than the minority of very big organizations that 
can do things the fancy and proper way because mm-hmm. a yeah. lot of the advice that you you read online um is best practice which to be honest in a lot of cases is completely unachievable yeah five um, day long design sprints and things like that yeah exactly exactly stuff like that that's very very hard to do in practice so um if you've been following along great if you haven't you can find the complete um uh course to date by going to uh, boag.world forward slash lean dash ux last time we looked at uh, hassle-free design approval and today we're going to look at testing during design and development which i think really on the topic of um doing things lean and in a way that that kind of everybody could potentially do is the crux of the matter right mm. because we all we're all told we should be doing testing right and it's very hard to find time and budget to do that and get permission from clients and stakeholders um and so we end up feeling guilty when we don't do testing because we feel like we failed as a ux designer and that is absolutely not not the case you do what you can within the limitations that are set on you mm-hmm. and even a little bit of testing is better than none at all so what we've got is we've got um i'm going to give a little talk in a second where i'm going to go through lots of different opportunities for you to test um but i say this in the talk and i will repeat it now i don't for a minute expect you to do all of the opportunities if you could just do one of them you're doing great um so you know don't feel overwhelmed by it and then after that we've got an interview uh between marcus and emma at headscape about how they go about um doing testing on a medium-ish project so i wouldn't say you work on enormous projects but you don't work at the bottom of the market either so so hopefully that will be pretty relevant for people as well so there we go let's jump in straight away with the talk and we will go from there we all know how important it is to test our websites with users and yet often it doesn't happen certainly not as much as we would like tight timelines and underinvestment make it feel impossible a lot of the time however a little testing with users is better than none at all so in this lesson i want to explore just how lean we can make user testing and still make it worthwhile i want to look at four distinct opportunities to introduce testing into our process now you might not be able to test at all four stages but hopefully you'll be able to do at least some testing in one or more of these opportunities Let's start at the beginning by looking at testing wireframes that you produce with your clients and stakeholders. Now, in my lesson on wireframing, I suggested that they're an excellent tool for collaborating with clients and stakeholders in a superb way to kick off a project. And although they're often nothing more than pen and paper sketches or maybe some grayscale wireframes produced in something like Balsamic, they are a great starting point for exploring things like visual hierarchy, information architecture and content flow. Of course, to be confident in the direction you've defined in your wireframes, you really need to test them by putting them in front of some real users. And to do that, there are three different tests that I favor. The first of which is a card sorting exercise. It's a dangerous business creating an information architecture without involving users, as the more knowledgeable one is on a subject, the more your mental model will vary from the majority of users. In other words, How you and your stakeholders organize information will be different from your audience. The solution to this problem is to run a card sorting exercise. Now, there are two types of card sorting, open and closed. As this lesson is looking at testing, we're going to focus on closed card sorting, which is ideal for testing top level navigation, the kind of navigation that you would include in something like a wireframe. In closed card sorting, you give the user a collection of cards. Each card represents a page of the site and contains some basic information about the page, such as what it's called and what it covers. Users are then encouraged to sort those cards into the same top level sections shown on your wireframe. If they can easily do this, you can be confident that the navigational sections that you have created actually work. That said, if time is tight, you could skip that entirely and go straight to the first click test which also can be used to uh, validate navigation in the first click test i ask users where they would click on a wireframe to complete 
a critical task that I'm concerned about. Now, this is a test worth doing because research carried out by Bob Bailey and Carrie Wolfson discovered that if users get their first click right, they've got an 87% chance of completing the action correctly, as opposed to only 46% chance if the first click is wrong. So there is, however, one more test that you might want to run, and that is the five-second test. As the name implies, a five-second test involves showing the design to a user for five seconds before taking it away. You then ask them to recall what they saw and make a note of the order in which they recall things, because that will give you an indication of what things on the page actually stuck in their minds the most. And I find it an invaluable way of giving myself and the client confidence that I've got the visual hierarchy and content flow of a page right. If users easily remember critical content and calls to action, I know that things are looking good. What's particularly good about the five second test and the first click test is that they're also ideal when you move into the design mock-up stage. In my previous lesson on pain-free design approval, I talked about how testing a design mock-up with users is an excellent way of avoiding revision hell because it discourages the client from relying on their personal opinion or resorting to design by committee. Now, this means that in many ways, testing at the design mock-up phase provides the best return on investment, especially if you're an external freelancer or agency. As I mentioned in my previous lesson, there are three tests that I like to carry out when I'm doing a design mock-up, and that includes the five-second and first-click tests we've already discussed. However, the third test I like to run on a design mock-up is called a semantic survey, and that's probably my favorite when it comes to testing design mock-ups. See, the next time a client complains about the visual aesthetic of a design, consider running a semantic survey. As I explained in the previous lesson, um, this involves showing the design to a handful of users and asking them how strongly or otherwise they associate it with whatever keyword you want to communicate. For example, if your aim is for the design concept to feel friendly, you would ask people, how strongly do you agree with the statement that this design is friendly? They can then rate their agreement on a scale of one to five. And this one simple test will end endless debates about whether a design wows users or not. Obviously, in an ideal world, you'd test throughout your website redesign. However, if you're forced to only test once, I'd recommend that you test your design concepts. The reason that I favor testing design mockups or possibly wireframes is threefold. First, all three tests that we've covered so far can easily be carried out with a tool like Usability Hub, who can even recruit users for as little as a dollar per participant. Second, stakeholders typically have the strongest opinions about design, and so it can avoid endless debates and ensure you remain focused on the user. And finally, the earlier you find problems with the redesign, the easier they are to fix. Always test as early as you can. In short, I believe that testing design mockups gives you the most return on investment and helps you encourage stakeholders to consider more testing later in the process. However, if you're in a position to produce something like high fidelity prototypes, this provides another excellent opportunity to test. You see, on larger, more complex projects, it makes sense to build a high fidelity prototype, often known as an alpha. This kind of prototype includes the fidelity of a design mock-up, but is interactive, allowing users to navigate around the site. And the interactive nature of prototypes opens up all kinds of possibilities that for testing that you can't do with the design mock-up, especially around things like information architecture and usability. This testing almost always involves some form of usability testing. And usability testing comes in four flavors. In-person facilitated testing, remote facilitated testing, in-person unfacilitated testing, and remote unfacilitated. Now, I've got to say, I've all but given up on in-person testing these days. Even before the pandemic, getting people in a room for testing was challenging. And with tool tools like Zoom, it's largely redundant these days. At the prototype stage, I tend to favor facilitated testing over unfacilitated. And that's because we're still very much in the process of defining the direction of the site. I'm therefore keen to ask questions of participants and gain their insights, something that I can't really do with unfacilitated testing. Now, I'm conscious that facilitated usability testing is more work. However, it's not as hard as you might think. 
One of the biggest reasons usability testing doesn't happen is that we struggle to find the right people to test. There are all kinds of reasons why it's hard to source real users, and even when we can, arranging time with them feels like it's just going to delay the project. But if you're testing things like findability, information architecture, and visual hierarchy, getting the right demographics isn't as important as you might think. Unless your audience is elderly or very young or has a disability of some kind, most people will struggle with similar problems. Instead of fretting about demographics, grab anyone who isn't involved with the product, service, or company. Family members are perfectly fine, as are non-work friends. Yes, you're going to get better results if you get the right audience, but if sourcing people is going to stop you, then don't worry too much about it. Also, don't worry too much about numbers. You don't need to test large numbers of people. Yes, more people are better, but after about five or six, the number of new issues you're going to find will dramatically decrease. Numbers do matter if testing aesthetics, but they matter a lot less when testing usability. Even a handful of people are going to spot most issues. Hopefully you can now see that usability testing can be done in a lean and lightweight way. But before we move on, let me share a few tips to ensure that things go as smoothly as possible. Running your first usability session can feel a little scary, but it really shouldn't do. The users that you're testing don't know if you're doing things wrong or not. And anyway, there is no single right or wrong way of doing these sessions. That said, some things that may help you get more value out of usability testing include the following. If you're new to running usability testing, spend some time preparing uh, because it will make all the difference. It will give you confidence and that in turn will relax your participants. Work out exactly what tasks you want the user to complete and any additional questions that you might have. It's also worth writing a script for the first part of the session so that you cover all the basics the participant needs to know. And if you check out the show notes, you'll find a link to what goes into a usability script. Second, keep your sessions short. Participants find usability testing tiring and so will you. So you want to keep them as short as possible. Remember, people are helping you out and you don't want to abuse their generosity, even if you're compensating them for their time. I usually aim for a maximum of about 40 minutes per session. That works well because you can then schedule one session per hour and that gives you 20 minutes between each sitting to update your notes and reflect on what you've seen. In that time, you can't expect a user to complete really any more than three reasonably complex tasks like purchasing a product. Realistically, you're only going to have about 10 minutes per task by the time you've welcomed the participant and explained how things work, etc. It's critical to ensure that the participant is relaxed as well. If they're not, then they're going to behave unnaturally and they're going to fail to talk freely about what they're thinking, which is a vital aspect of good usability testing. Also, make it clear to participants that they're not the ones being tested. And that's why we should avoid referring to it as user testing, because that's what it makes it sound like. Explain that there's no right or wrong answer, but instead you're looking for shortcomings in the service or product you're developing. Next, distance yourself from the product, right? If you've uh, helped to build the service, I recommend playing that down. I've been known to just downright lie in this regards and say that I wasn't involved at all. The reason I do this is to give participants the freedom to criticize it. If they think you created it, then they're not going to want to upset you and pull it apart, especially if you've been paying them for their time. Finally, keep the sessions casual and friendly. Offer people tea and coffee. Start the meeting with some small talk and ask the user a little bit about themselves. Do everything you can to put people at their ease, which includes limiting the number of people in the room. If other people want to watch, that's great, but make sure they're doing it through a remote link. Be careful in sessions to not accidentally nudge your participants in any particular direction. In particular, watch the wording that you use when people are completing tasks. For example, avoid using words that appear in the interface. People will instantly look for those words and so they're much more likely to be able to complete the task. 
You'll also find that users will ask you questions during a task and resist the urge to answer them unless completely necessary, as you may well accidentally assist them. They wouldn't have somebody sitting beside them answering their queries in the real world, and so you should avoid it in usability testing. Instead, apologize and explain that you don't want to influence them, and then at the end of the session, return to the participant's question and answer them at that point. When you do run test sessions, make sure you record them, capturing both the user and what they're doing. Now, I use a tool called Lookback, which captures the user via their webcam and records their screen as well. However, you could just as easily use Zoom, to be honest. These videos are great for referring back to af afterwards, but they also have another benefit too. You can take them and edit them down into a compilation of critical moments that you can show to stakeholders and management who were unable to attend. That said, wherever possible, ask people to watch the sessions live so you can discuss them together. I promise that if you follow the advice that I've given you, you'll be amazed at what you discover and you'll find that everybody wants to carry out more usability testing later, including as you move into the development stage. Hopefully, with all of the testing you've done, you should be in a pretty strong position by the time you start actually building your site. Your information architecture, design, content flow and visual hierarchy should all be tailored to your audience. And so it will really be just a matter of building the site. That said, if time and budget allows, it's worth testing during development phase two. And that's because the more rounds of testing you do, the more issues you will uncover as previous usability barriers have been removed. There's also the fact that usability hurdles will creep in during development as you change things during the build process. You could run additional rounds of facilitated testing during development. However, I'm aware that this can prove a bit time consuming. And so an alternative is to run some unfacilitated testing. In unfacilitated testing, you don't watch the usability sessions live. Instead, you set a task and invite users to participate using a tool like Lookback, Maze or UserTesting.com. They then um, complete the task while talking through their thinking out loud. And each session is recorded so you can watch it back at your leisure later. These tools will even do the recruitment for you if you so wish. Although unfacilitated testing doesn't allow you to interact with users, by this stage you should have caught most of the big usability issues already. Testing in the development stage is really just about a sanity check as it's too expensive really to make big changes at this point. There will always be opportunities post-launch to test further and optimize your website, as we're going to discuss in the next lesson. So keep your changes fairly minimal once you hit development. Now, I'm conscious that this course is supposed to focus on lean UX, and yet in this lesson, I've given you a whole raft of different testing options, far more than you probably have time to do. However, that doesn't mean you should do all of them. I don't expect you to, as I said at the very beginning. When it comes to testing with users, it's better to do something, no matter how small, than it is to do nothing at all. Start small and add more testing over time as clients and stakeholders begin to see the value of it. We also have a habit of fixating on in-person facilitated usability testing when that's often not the most cost-effective option available to you. As I've already said, testing a design mock-up often brings a better return and is relatively easy to do. At least... It's the best option during the redesign phase. However, once the site goes live, you'll find a whole host of new options available to you. And we're going to cover those in the next lesson. So then, Marcus, oh, go on. What did I, was I, was I realistic in that or did I get a bit carried away? I agree with all of it, really. I mean, I think, oh, good. I think I place what you didn't, and you kind of finished off by by saying this is that it's particularly at the moment it's hard because we can't actually get to see people. But I yeah. I think that being in the room with someone and testing still is uh, yeah is is really valuable. Basically, because you can read them, uh, yes. you can and you can kind of read the situation much better than even if you're mm -hmm. on video like we are now. Um, yeah, that's the difference. So if you can. Uh, and it, it doesn't really cost much more other than the what the petrol, the train journey or whatever it's going to take you to get there to do the testing. Um, yeah. It's it's that's I'd say that that's worthwhile. Um, the other and thing I, is, I got to say, I got to say, Marcus, I, I do agree with that. Absolutely. Mm. Um, 
But is you say it doesn't cost more? No, maybe not. But it does take out more time because you have to travel places or yeah. you have to persuade people to come to you. Uh, and so I did. I kind of agonised a little bit over that mm. because I totally agree with you. You know, Inface is just brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've kind of got to the point where I don't. I don't often actually do it, even <laughs> though I know it's better. You know, it d- and so it I felt a bit a of a lot- fraud. On your client, um, because yeah. um, as you're about to hear, dear listener, Emma and I, t- Emma and I talk about a lot of face-to-face stuff that we've done. Yeah. Because you can, you can talk about your a- actual experiences. Um, and it really does depend on your client because um, we've done quite a bit of work over the years for University Hospital in Southampton. And obviously mm. you've got, you know, uh, the people walking through the front door all the yeah. time there that you can just go... Yeah. Mind if you just give us 20 minutes of your time? Um, So it's kind of set up to spending a day there, and you'll get lots and lots of feedback. Uh, Whereas others, it's much more difficult. Um, You know, all the law firm clients, we can't get to any of their any of their clients. You just, Mm -hmm. you know, you just. I've never had access to one, so you have to make the best of it. Really, exactly, Um, and it's about being pragmatic. Sorry, you were you you had another point to raise. I, I always I always take diligent notes, Paul. I listen to every word. I hit pause and think, have a little think about it, and then I go. Oh, crikey! Oh. No, I don't really. I just um, fast forward through yours. Yeah, exactly. Yes, <laughs> all that waffle because it is mostly waffle. Um, yeah. uh, I was going to say, I, I, but the general point that I agree with is some testing is better than no testing. Yeah. If you're going to ask your your mum uh, or your wife, your husband, or whatever, then that is better than doing none at all. However, I think yeah. when you're doing design testing, it is you need to take what your mum says with a pinch of salt uh, oh, o- yeah. over what can you find the 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 word on the page kind yeah. of test um, because it's it's more relevant i think uh, what the demographic is, is is more relevant for design testing. i would totally agree with that and also i think you need to test a few more people as well yeah. so where with usability testing you can get away with testing say you know six people is, mm-hmm. is seems to be the standard um i think design is so subjective that you can easily end up with an outlier somebody who's you know hates blue because they were always made to wear hideous blue trousers as a kid or something like that. Absolutely. So, um, you know, <laughs> so as a result, I, I think uh, I was reading an article, I think it was by the Nielsen Norman group that suggested that in those kinds of cases where you were worried about outliers and you wanted something that was a little bit more statistically accurate, even 13 people is, is enough to kind of start seeing mm. trends there. So it's not like you have to get like 130 or something, but you know, even, even as low as 13, you start to get real value out of that. So mm. yeah. And also with design testing, when you're testing aesthetics, you tend to be surveys and things like that. So it's yeah. not as time consuming, is it? Exactly. I, mean, I would actually, as a very, very kind of broad rule of thumb is do usability testing in the room with somebody and only do a handful mm-hmm. if you can. Uh, and for design testing, set up a, a an unfacilitated self service type thing where yeah. hope you know your client can then contact with their social media channels, and you might get two hundred responses. Yeah, um, yeah, and absolutely. I think that's, that's the way to go. <laughs> and the final point is, I was just agreeing with you again is recording these sessions is the best ammunition you've got for change um, yes. within within the organisation you're working for. Um, we've been hired on quite a few occasions just to kind of make the case for change. Uh, you know, yeah. d- d- digital transformation type stuff, and getting existing users to to use tools um, changes minds better than anything else. Yeah, and because you can create these horror videos, can't yes. you? I love them. Yeah, you know, <laughs> you know, minute and a half to two minutes of lots of swearing, basically, yeah. and and saying I would never buy from this company ever again. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. That just is is so We've, good. We did some for University of Edinburgh, and it was a it was basically looking at whether they should be investing in updating their internal systems. And it's the whole yeah. thing of well, these are intelligent people; they can deal with it. Yeah, kind of, yeah. Kind of thing. We're hiring the most intelligent. What well, hiring? We we are bringing the most intelligent minds in. And Edinburgh is a <sighs> top Russell Group University, and this kind of thing. And then, of course, you get people you, you get them using one system and then another system and another system and yeah. they just go through it Norm, normally completely kind of you know calmly and like well but this one just doesn't work and and it's yeah. what i have to do to do this it's brilliant and where it works particularly well is i find if you compare it 
So yeah. there are some people that respond to that kind of emotional, you know, of seeing people frustrated. And But if you can then pair it with, and we looked at the analytics and we saw that 75% of people were dropping off at this point in the journey, which means that, you know, 5,000 people are feeling this way, yes. you know, that really drives the point home as well, you know, because otherwise people do occasionally. It's amazing what people can justify in their heads. Oh, oh well, you haven't got the right group of people there or, oh, they must be an oddity or unusual, you know. it's Or Donald it, people, Trump. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. There you go. Anyway, before we get into that again, let's let's do your interview because you were talking about testing with your mum there. Mm -hmm. I I love Emma's story in this mm -hmm. this interview about her mum. So let's mm -hmm. play this and uh, we'll talk about it after. Okay, uh, on this week's show, I have another headscaper. This episode's guest is Emma Manning, Headscape's long-suffering project manager. Hi, Emma. Good morning, Marcus. How are you? <laughs> uh, I'm very well. Um, <laughs> I make no apologies about getting another headscaper on the show. You're our third in this series. Um, obviously, the main one of the main reasons is that you're a lot easier to book um, than somebody who I haven't spoken to for in years. Uh, but the main reason, and you know, all, all jokes aside, is that you are ideally placed to talk about today's subject, which is, as Paul would have already said, testing during design and development. Because it's something that you've done an awful lot of over the years. It is, actually, yes. I've done quite a bit of user testing over the past few years. <laughs> but um, yes. I enjoy it. So that's the good thing. But before we start talking about that, I always give um, people a bit of time because um, you have been on the show once before, I think, but that was a while ago. So I think it's, I think it would be good if you could tell people who are listening a little bit about yourself, about your background, which is certainly interesting compared to probably a lot of people. Um, uh, and if there's anything that's sort, sort of on your mind, any interesting subjects that you, you've been um, looking at lately, then feel free. This is, your, this is your opportunity to annoy Paul by talking about anything but web design for five minutes. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> well, so uh, let's start with you know, about me. So I suppose I've been working in digital from quite early days, really, of CD-ROMs, and that's probably where I, I started mm -hmm. <laughs> a long time. And actually, testing back in those days was really, really different. So I sort of started off at Dorling Hindersley and uh, working on their multimedia side. And and as you got closer to a product, you know, going live, well, going out the door, you mm -hmm. had a whole user testing department there. Um, you know, and it would ramp up towards the end of it. Big team, big user testing. Just, just, just to dive in there, just for people who don't understand yeah. what that is, because there might be some. Dorling Kindersley <laughs> used to do, probably still do, the sort of glorious, lovely books, didn't they? Full of pictures about. Yeah, they had a very good reputation for doing educational titles, um, in particular, like the big kind of uh, encyclopedia. Right stuff, um, but uh, where I worked was the experimental arm, which was the interactive game. So it was sort of teaching oh, right. kids maths and spellings, um, and it was quite different to all the other Dorling Industry products, really, because it was far more interactive. Mm. Um, but yeah, certainly, I suppose those early days, having a whole sort of user testing department was, uh, and everything sort of ramped up towards. Uh, a CD-ROM actually being pressed and that physicality of it going out the door, yeah. you know, the testing had to be really, really thorough um, and and they would, you know, look for all the bugs, etc. So it's, it, it was very different in that sense because there were costs involved in manufacturing an item that went out to the general public. And at that point, you know, it's going to cost you a lot of money if you've got to recall it because you've got some sort of error on it. So user testing back then was was very, very different. Um yeah, to, to the sort of web side of things that we do. A bit like publishing yeah. a book, I guess, same sort of thing. Even though it was a kind of interactive product, it was still, um, yeah, something that once it, once it had been made, you couldn't change it. Absolutely, yeah. And still things did. I always remember this. She was very, very thorough at the head of the user of the testing. <laughs> and something did go out the door. And, and it was literally the execution script to make the thing run that failed. Oh, um, no. So they, they did sort of press a whole load of things. And it, it, in some respects, she was so diligent, um, Helen, who did all the testing there, that, and she was mortified that a product had gone out the door and, uh, and it had a fault with it. And then, you know, they had to press again. So, yeah, it was, you know, it was interesting 
to experience that, I suppose, early career days. Just to pick up on that, I mean, because I hadn't, this hadn't occurred to me, we're always banging on about how great kind of websites and digital stuff is because you can go back and change it easily compared to books and things like that, or printed material that, that once it's done and once it's printed, that's it. Um, but from a user testing point of view, having a grounding in that arena where where things where it kind of meant more i suppose to a certain extent if if you didn't get it right actually means an awful lot and it's never occurred to me before so there you go yeah <laughs> anyway yes sorry carry on yeah so um, i suppose that was how i sort of started off in digital and then digital obviously changed because you know the inter- internet when i was working in Dorling Kindersley wasn't a thing or it was only just becoming a thing back then yeah. Um, and then I sort of went off and I did various things. And as you know, Marcus, I went into teaching yep. <laughs> later on in life and spent five years in that. And then, yeah, I've come back into digital and I've been with Headscape for five years now and uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, but I think what I really love about it is, you know, I think sometimes when you're on the agency side of things, and I don't know if you feel the same, but you sort of sometimes say, oh, you know, maybe it would just be nice to work with the same website and just sort of you know maybe that'd be easier but then actually you start with a new client and it's this brand new canvas and you get this whole new snapshot into another organization another world another set of processes and uh, and I think that's what really keeps it very enjoyable really um, but I think it is it, that's just the nature of working in an agency isn't it that yeah I mean I... You, you have to respond to it and that that's the good part, the fact that you've always got a new challenge. What we're often complaining about is that we don't have enough time to spend on those new talent challenges because yes. there's pressure coming from all angles. But yeah, I'd rather have it that way than, I don't know, just one, you're working on one thing all the time. I think, I guess you could, you could find your challenges, but they would, you'd have to kind of create them. I think more than they're just laid on our lap uh, one after another. <laughs> that's, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that's a cool thing. Anyway, let's move yeah, on to the absolutely. questions about yeah. testing. Um, testing. Think, yes. Um, <laughs> I got you, as I said, right at the start of this interview, I got you involved because you've been, uh, basically you've taken on responsibility for carrying out usability testing with Headscape over the last five years. And it's been very focused on kind of one-to-one you facilitating the test. So. I think we should maybe yes. stop say, saying that that's the kind of angle we're coming from on this. So, I mean, can you describe, you know, a kind of when you when you're involved in usability testing, what what does that usually entail? So, it normally entails a test script which I haven't originated, and it also involves a um, prototype, a website mm. prototype. That I also haven't created, but I've been involved, you know, with the whole design and creation process and all the UX workshops up to that point anyway. So I'm obviously very heavily involved with the project and very familiar with it. Um, as I say, I don't normally write the test scripts. So I have got some advice about that when you are the person who's actually facilitating the user testing. And that is test the script beforehand you know, it it will teach you so much about the problems you might encounter, whether it's the script itself or whether it's things that perhaps you can see in the prototype early on that, you know, you think, oh, actually, this might pose a problem to to the end users and the people who are doing the testing. Um, So that really is one of my top tips is to is to test the script yourself. And it also familiarises yourself with actually why am I asking these questions? What am I trying to achieve? Mm. And as I say, you know, that the ultimate goal, which is to make sure that the, you know, that the, the site you're designing is fit for purpose, that you can access everything. So it, it really, you really will learn a lot just by going through and testing it yourself. <laughs> absolutely Um, i I think it's i think maybe you're maybe implying there who does write the scripts it's usually me (laughs) oh yeah Um, you or chris and and, um and and i would also say that you know when you are doing facilitating the questions uh i quite often edit them so that they are in words that i'm comfortable delivering rather than sometimes when you're reading somebody else's words you think well actually i wouldn't say it like that yeah 
I think so, as long, you know, as, long as yeah, as, as long as you as long as you understand what you're trying to ask. Dead right. Yeah. I mean, I've done a little bit of testing over the years, and, and I guess the only thing to add to this that, that I've done that maybe you've got less experience of is is doing kind of design testing, so testing aesthetics rather than testing prototypes, um, which we haven't done a lot of lately, and I, I wonder why. I guess. The budget and time can often get in the way of that, but we've used um, we've we've kind of set up design testing in the past where you can kind of do A/B testing with a kind of dark background and a light yeah. background to give a kind of really simple e- example. And if you know seventy five percent go for the light background, then that's the direction we're going in. And we've done others where we've kind of does where we've picked a bunch of words. So we might have talked about we might have done design exercises that suggest yeah. certain words are associated with the brand. Um, and you'll pick, like you do a design exercise where you'll ask a question, is, is the following design or the following page that, you, that we're, we're going to show you, does it elicit, which of the following words does it, does it kind of most represent to you? And you'll make sure you put in one that you really don't want people to select because if they do, then you'll know you're going down the wrong route. So that, that's been an interesting exercise over the years, but not something we've done an awful lot of. But anyway, I'm rambling. You, I think you're right, though, Marcus. I think for a lot of organisations, it, it can sometimes just appear as an item on the list that you have to, it's a checkbox that you've got to tick. Oh, user testing, you know, tick. Mm-hmm. And um, what I always say is, you know, whenever I've been to the pitches, is, is it is something that it isn't just a checkbox. It's something that you, you know, we do change things as a result of doing this exercise of making sure that the UX is correct. So it's that willingness to actually make the changes and not just, oh, no, but, you know, it, yeah. it's it's just something we've got to do because we've said we're going to do it. Yes, you need to embrace it, I think is what you're saying. Yeah. Uh, so what what kind of thing do you cover in, in, in the testing exercises that you do? Really, you're testing the information architecture and that people can access content easily um so the structure works um as i say normally if i'm doing the testing it's a prototype so there's there's lots of um pitfalls if you like in terms of testing a prototype because it's not got the proper content it's not got the layers of design and so sometimes if somebody's going through and they're and they're unable to identify something that you're asking them to find uh, whatever that might be Sometimes it can be a little bit of a red herring because you'll go back to the designer and they'll say, well, actually, I can fix that. So it, you're asking them to find perhaps just one word on a page, which is a link to some content. But they'll say, well, actually, if I make this more of a call to action and stick an arrow on it and <laughs> make it bolder yeah. and bigger and, you know, give it a heading, then it, it will work. So it's, it's things like that that you just need to be aware of as well. Do you think that there's ever an occasion, and I apologise, I'm going off script here, talking about going off <laughs> script. Um, do you ever think there's an occasion where it's okay to guide the tester? Yes. I think, in all honesty, if somebody's really struggling, generally, when you're delivering the script, you need to deliver it in the same way for everybody in order to make it a fair test. However, mm. I do think there are occasions when you can guide somebody because if they are really struggling in terms of trying to find whatever it is, um, you have to be aware that they're possibly in a really alien environment. You know, it's like actually what you're asking them to do is quite an alien thing. They wouldn't normally search a website or, you know, or navigate a website in this particular way. So I think there is always scope actually to guide people if, if... they're distracted more by the setup almost rather than by what you're asking them to do. Because if you gave them the same task and it was a different environment and they were just doing it naturally, they'd probably be able to do it very, very easily. So I think there is, you, you need to just make a judgment call as to whether you think that person is not, is struggling because of the setup. 
I agree entirely. And unfamiliarity and, yeah. than, than actually, yeah, than, than because it's an impossible in task. And actually, there's nothing wrong with your prototype. It's perfect and all the rest of it, <laughs> which it isn't. Yeah. So, but it is that, you know, you just got to call it depending on the person and what they're struggling with. Yeah, it's about but getting yes, valuable so. results, so really, isn't it? That's that's what it's yeah. about. And if if a little bit of a nudge here and there means that you're going to get more value from that particular test, then yeah, I think it's it's perfectly valid. We're not looking at testing. What we're talking about here is not we're not testing a thousand people here and getting quantitative results. That's not what we're looking at here. What well, this is a qualitative test, really. We're looking at testing. I don't know a dozen people at the most, probably. So it's getting the most value out of those testers. I think is the most important thing. And sometimes if you have to guide people a bit, kind of goes back to the making sure that you introduce the test and set it up make people know that they're not being tested and all of that kind of stuff which um maybe we're taking for granted here i mean that's uh, yeah yeah but we always do that and i mean Mm. that is important i mean you and i know this that you know you you do say do your preamble and you say that you know this isn't a test of you it's a test Mm. of the uh, prototype or the design and you know you you could but you can say that umpteen times people will still turn around and go oh no you know they'll be apologetic about you know maybe not being able to go the the quickest route to find something but actually those are the bits of information which are the most useful Um, so I always sort of thank them after they've done that oh thank you so much because that's the bit that's really useful Definitely. I mean, I've I've found over the years a really handy thing. To, I mean, and this kind of goes in most of our introductions, but is to is to tell them, even if I have had a part in the design of what they're looking at, that it's got nothing to do with me. Uh, be as rude as yes. you like, um, yeah. because yeah, <laughs> otherwise people are apologetic. And uh, yes. Anyway, um, have you got anything for making um, testing successful? I mean, we've talked about that all the way through. But anything else you'd like to add? I I would say don't ask too many questions. You can ask too many questions. 20 is too many. Okay. Um, I think 10 to 15 is probably the max. Um, I normally try and indicate halfway through that they are halfway through or (laughs) approaching the end of their questions because otherwise they're left slightly not knowing how much longer this is going to take. Yes. Um, Yeah, you need to avoid fatigue, don't you? Yes. (laughs) Okay. Um, well, what I'm going to finish off with um, is um, have do you have any kind of like specific memories of interesting things you've learned over over the years of carrying out testing? I think there's a couple of things. One is that I think quite early on I realised that there are sort of two types of people. There are those who will use a search box for absolutely everything, and that's right. their go-to. And then there's you know the, the actually there's probably the smaller portion of people who don't so yeah when you've got the people who say well I would just use the search box for that that's perfectly valid but you normally then have to give them a bit of a steer to say well okay yes that's all perfectly valid but can you for the purposes of this testing you know navigate to it uh, another way um so yes that's a great example of guiding somebody isn't it yeah um and and I suppose the other the other thing that sticks with me is I remember I did a, an awful lot of user testing for BTO, British Trust for Ornithology, right. who, um, you know, they put a lot of emphasis on the user testing because they had very, very different user audiences. So it was important to test all of those. And I just remember it was, we, I'd done an awful lot of user testing. I think I was on their on-site uh, British Trust for Ornithology. It was a Friday I must have done about six sessions already. So it's Friday afternoon. I started a long drive home. And the last tester was, um, you know, a British ornithologist, academic, you know, doctor, right. so-and-so, professor, whoever it was, Friday afternoon, it was session six. And you're thinking, I'm flagging a bit. <laughs> and And in my head, you know, my preconceived ideas was that, this would be somebody in their 60s, you know, very well spoken, quietly spoken. You know, I just had this completely preconceived idea of what this person was going to be. Right. And this chap came on. It was a video session. And he was nothing like that at all. He was a geezer from the East End of London, <laughs> and absolutely brilliant. And, you know, young, I think he was in his sort of 20s, 30s. And so it was just that whole thing of, of, you know, all of my preconceptions melted away. And I think 
in in a way that's what you have to think about with your ux design as well in terms of the things you're testing um you know it's all those preconceptions you have about how people interact with content but it is a very human the whole user testing thing is a very human engagement um, 100% yeah so yes it's about yeah i mean i think that's 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 nailed it actually it's you're there being a facilitator isn't someone who just asks questions it's about helping people to take the test to valuable outcomes that and that is uh yeah it's a human interaction it's not just a box ticking exercise the one thing that i've learned over the years from testing and this is a little bit crass but well, it's not crass but it's kind of a a simplistic thing is not everybody knows to click on the logo to go back to the home page and people need to understand that. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, on that note, um, I've just spent a month living at my parents in between moving out of one property and moving into another. So right. finding myself between properties, I was living with my octogenarian parents. Now, my mum, you know, is very, very deaf, but she's also a complete technophobe. She doesn't, you know, she hasn't got a smartphone. She hasn't really got a mobile phone. Right. But I got her one for her driving. She's 86. And she'll, she will read all the instructions. And so I bought her this little mobile phone, very simple Nokia thing. And on yeah. it, it says um, about scroll, you know, you scroll to this, that and the other. Her mum turned around to me and she said, um, what's scroll? What is scroll? Yeah. You know? <laughs> and it, I really <laughs> I really had to sort of think, oh, how on earth am I going to explain this? And in the end, I just did an action. <laughs> she got it. But <laughs> it was that kind of, oh, you know, you just take it for granted, really. Yeah, exactly. Don't, yeah, don't, uh, two things to take from this. Don't take for granted anything. That's the point of testing uh, and understand yeah, that, you, that you're dealing with humans and not just box ticking. Okay, that's fantastic. Thank you, Emma. I much appreciate your Pleasure. time. Okay, then. Thanks, Marcus. What is scrolling? I love it. Mm-hmm. I love it. It's amazing how how you just forget how many people don't know basic stuff about using the web. And you, and you think, you know, and you think, you say to yourself, oh, well, of course, because, you know, she's an older generation and all the rest of it. But, you know, I've got friends that are, you know, builders and plumbers and, you know, and they they very rarely interact that yeah they've got a smartphone maybe Mm. um you know and so they would understand something like scrolling but they're not using technology regularly so there are all kinds of little quirks and things that they don't understand Mm. Uh, and you know why should they i know nothing about plumbing so you know why should they know anything about computers but yeah my example on that one about about the the logo being a home link is Oh yeah, a real, very realistic example yeah. of that. I mean, scrolling. Yeah, I think most people kind of. Yeah, yeah. you can learn that. You can you can yeah. fiddle with it and get it in the end. But on a phone, anyway, maybe not on a browser. But yeah, what what's a browser? That's another one. But the well, the uh, home. Sorry, so just uh, on browsers, of course, they made it way worse these days because they hide the scroll bar. Yeah. It, not until you start scrolling do you see a scroll bar. We've and all so got these, these things, these like fancy, yeah. ma- you know, magic mice, mouses. Um, yeah. But yeah. And, and see, the other thing is, is you often get websites where you've got this big, beautiful hero image. I was reviewing a website like this only yesterday, and it had a big um, hero image that filled the entire vertical space. There was no indication you could scroll on that at all. Anyway, I'm going off on a tangent. You Absolutely were, you true. Were no, but it was actually doing testing at, at the University Hospital Southampton, because right. we'd got into an argument's too strong, but we were basically saying... We think you need to, for the audience that you have, people maybe in an emergency situation mm-hmm. um, and a very, very broad audience, um, mm-hmm. we don't think you can make any assumptions about your mm-hmm. users. So we think you need to keep a home link in your navigation. It might maybe yeah. as as a as an icon, but I you know, my opinion on icons, just use the word. Yeah. Um so and they were like oh, it's too many too many items because we were saying you also need to limit the number. So there was this kind of like, yeah. well, let's get rid of home then. Let's get rid of home. And we said, well, let's test this. And of course, fifty percent of people didn't know yeah. that they could use it to get back. Yeah, to, we had a simple test. 
If you don't put home, yeah, home link in the navigation and then go to ask, home. Yeah, well, ask people to do it. You can almost do it as an aside. It's one of those wonderful tests that uh, isn't biased in any way because you ask them to do something and then, oh, and if we could just go back to the homepage and they're like, uh, yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah. Anyway. So, yeah, <laughs> I, I love that. I love, I love that kind of testing. Uh, yeah. And there, there were so many great points that, that I think she made in that, um, that really, really resonated with me. The one, but I think the one thing that I really enjoyed was that idea of actually running through the script before and uh, running through the test yourself. Cause uh, I'm terrible at that. I, I don't do that. Just wrote down in case you didn't make the point, do a run through. Yeah. You know? Because I, I, I've got to confess, I don't do that. And then I get into a usability test session. And I say to myself every time, next time I must do that. And I get into it and they get stuck on something. And mm. I go, oh, that's my fault. I, you know, they <laughs> yeah. shouldn't be getting stuck on that. This, I'm terrible at usability testing. Never let me run a usability test for you. Um, well, well you, you can see why uh, I help with the script and then Emma takes it away and actually does yeah. it because yeah, she's because, thorough. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, the other thing that really kind of struck me that she said was this idea of, you know, testing is not just a checkbox. You have to be willing to make the changes afterwards. Otherwise, don't waste your time. Yes. And that is so true because a lot of people, you know, yes, you do like, the test and then they go, wow. I don't think it's that big a problem and just ignore it. You know? <laughs> exactly. I was right in the first place. It's, yes, it's just yeah. literally literally a case of, yeah, that. Yeah, and, and the fact that it's it's not, it, it's a kind of human interaction process I thought was a really interesting thing, which I kind of knew, but I'd never thought about it in those terms, that mm. you have to kind of accept that everyone that's walking in the door is different and you not, and you need to kind of nurture that little half an hour of time with them you can't be yeah too rigid yeah the, there was one other thing that she said which was the getting distracted how people can get distracted by the setup mm. um of the the test uh and that's why i lean towards remote testing yeah good point right yeah. because mm. they're at home but that said the way you described it is you go to them rather than expecting them to come to you. And I think that that's got a good value to it because um, that overcomes the problem. You're in their environment, they're mm. set up, they know what they're doing, you know? So, um, but of course that, that takes more effort when you have to go to them. So I, yeah. that, that's where I fall back on remote maybe um, because it really can come back to bite you. I mean, I've told this story hundreds of times on the podcast over the years, but the, the one where... We did with we Wiltshire Farm Foods, and, yeah. and I think it was Rob that was doing the testing. When <laughs> every <laughs> single person didn't know how to use a mouse because they they were elderly people that all had laptops with trackpads on them. Yeah, yeah. you know, so you, all kinds <laughs> of things can throw a usability test session, um, and you need to just be aware of them. Yeah. So my no, favourite story of all, though, from those sessions was one you did where um, the the lady that you'd gone into her house had a post-it note stuck oh, over yeah. the corner of the screen so she couldn't see the basket where the basket yeah. or the search box were and it's like yeah. well I'm, I, how can you odds that you can't yeah you, and you, it's not something you can design yeah, because yeah. if you just move the you know, it all smaller move everything the in the middle yeah yeah every, yeah and then somebody decides to put a post-it note over the middle of their screen for yeah, some yeah. reason you know exactly. it's just, you can't win with that but it's yeah great. it's still funny Right, um, we got a little, uh, as we always do, we've got a little um, uh, chat with the guys from Balsamic um, and we're going to be talking about visual hierarchy. So here's my little interview with them. So joining me on this month's show is Billy from Balsamic. Hello, Billy. How are you doing? Good, good. How are you? I am excellent indeed. So um, you, you've picked an absolute corking article this time round. Um, tell, tell everybody what it's about. Sure. So uh, the article is about visual hierarchy and alignment and how to use it to improve your UI design. Which is superb. Right? It's the, the timing is just so weird, right? After I finish doing this, the very next thing I'm doing is um, a... a, a a workshop session 
on creating compelling landing pages and about how to improve conversion. And the particular session we're doing is on design. And one of the most important points that I make in the entire thing is the importance of visual hierarchy. <laughs> yeah, get the visual hierarchy right and you're golden. So what can you tell our listeners that they need to know in terms of visual hierarchy? Sure. Yeah. So what I like to start off with is always say that hierarchy is how we sort of notice things, how we see things visually yeah. speaking. So whatever stands out most is what's going to stick out in our brains the most. So yeah. um, understanding the principles of hierarchy will always really help you understand or um, improve the usability of whatever you're designing. Mm -hmm. um, and something else I talked about in the article, I mentioned alignment. Alignment actually is also really important. It kind of speaks to hierarchy where if you have items that are poorly aligned on your page, it actually makes that content stand out more than you want it to typically yeah. because it, it disrupts that unconscious scanning that you do when you're looking at a page. Actually, I, alignment's a really interesting one because you can use it in your favor. Um, and actually, that is something I've got to confess. I've listed a whole load of ways in my workshop about drawing attention to a call to action. And I haven't mentioned alignment. And actually, you're spot on. If, if you break the grid with, with something like a call to action or something like that, your eye will instantly go to exactly. it. It's really interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. It's a very um, fundamental part of graphic design that you're sort of taught. Mm. Um, you know, you're keeping things in line. Uh, with the intention of using it to break the lines to call mm -hmm. to call out certain things. So, yeah, yeah. absolutely. So, uh, what what are the main things people need to kind of keep an eye on when it comes to to visual hierarchy um, in particular? You know, what should they be paying attention to if maybe they don't have that design background and training? Sure. Yeah. So I think the best thing to do if you don't have any training at all is you either need to do this yourself or have a friend do it for you and do what um, I think we've all referred to as the five second test or the squint yes. test. And it's like, what's the first thing you see in the page? And if that's not what you wanted them to see, that's the problem. So that means mm -hmm. your alignment's off. And you, again, then you can learn how to fix those by general visual design principles of like scale. It's interesting. A lot of times it's scale and scale and color yeah. are usually what draw your attention. Yeah, absolutely. And you've got a great graphic that perfectly demonstrates that where you, you've got, um, you know, different uh, text at different sizes and you can predict the order. Someone will read that, those, that text in, even though it's not from top to bottom. You know, you, you pull the eye around all, all kinds of ways using um, contrast and color and and uh, and size and those kinds of things. Of course, the other the other big one is is negative space as well. You know, if something's yeah. got a lot of space around. I always think about, you know, it's that way that if you've got even the, the smallest mark on a plain white wall, you will spot it. Right. But yeah, if you could exactly. have a mark that's five times as big, but if it's a patterned wall, you won't, you know, that, yeah. that kind of thing is very powerful when it comes to, to kind of visual hierarchy as well. I always find. Yeah. And I think if you are not a designer, but you're trying to sort of play that role, try to use hierarchy to guide the user where you want them to go next and next and next and sort of walk them through the experience with this, this tool. Mm, absolutely. And I think the, the going back to, to um, what we're talking about in this particular show, which is 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 kind of testing during the de uh, development stage. That's where things like you said, a five second test is absolutely brilliant. You show the design for a few seconds, you take it where you ask people to recall it and pay attention, not just to what they recall but the order in which they recall yeah. it because they will always mention the the biggest impact things first won't they so so yeah absolutely brilliant okay right. well if you want to check out that article i'll put a link into the show notes because it is an absolutely superb article that i highly recommend that you check out um but otherwise billy thank you so much for coming on and introducing us to the to the subject it's a great one especially for any non-designers that are trying to to um learn this kind of stuff that is an absolute kind of fundamental principle of visual design <laughs> Oh,
Okay, so that wraps us up for this mm. show. Um, uh, it's it's a, a really tricky subject of getting that balance between what's practical and what you, you really should be doing. Um, and I will repeat it one more time, that just do what you can and don't feel guilty if you can't do everything. It's better to do something than nothing at all. 100%. Um, and even, you know, the only, only caveat I would place on that is if you know that the testing you're running is far from perfect, just manage your stakeholders' expectations, you know, <laughs> that you can take it with a pinch of salt because you might see peculiarities sometimes that you go, mm, I, we really probably ought to ignore that one because we've bodged it in some way, you know? Yeah. So you do need to be a little bit aware of that. But yeah, generally speaking, something is better than nothing. So next time, we're going to mm. still look at testing, but we're going to look at a different part of the testing process. We're going to look at um, once you've launched the website, um, because that's a, a pretty important subject, um, especially when it comes to things like conversion optimization. So you're trying to encourage people to take action on your website. And really the best testing you can do with there is once a website's launched. And it's often an area that people neglect. So that one won't be out until after Christmas. So no. ha have a lovely Christmas, everybody. And Marcus is going to end what has been a glorious year with <laughs> a joke. <laughs> yes, I am. This one from Aslan. Um, just spotted Sinead O'Connor bird watching. I asked her how she was getting on. She said, so far, it's been seven owls and 15 jays. Oh, that is terrible. <laughs> That's my new favourite joke. I think it's, it's brilliant. brilliant. <laughs> it's absolutely brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. But yeah, yeah I, there, there's a lot of presumptions there. I think, A, you have to be a certain age to even know who Sinead O'Connor is. And B, you need to have grown up in a certain period of time to know that particular song. But It was yeah. enormous all the way around the world. But yes, yeah, fair enough. If you don't understand that, go back and listen to Sinead O'Connor's only really big hit. It's funny. Yeah, <laughs> it, it is funny. And also, if you don't understand that, we hate you because you're young. Quite. Yeah, grumpy old man. <laughs> right, so there we go. Thank you very much for listening to this uh, month's show. We will be back again in 2021 when the whole world's going to be perfect by then, right? There's uh, magically on New Year's Eve, everything is going to go, oh, and we're going to be in a wonderful new reality. You well, see. I'm hoping I will be in a new house, but still, well, uh, fingers crossed on that one. Oh, I'll well. well. You can update us next month, by the but till then, thank you for listening and goodbye. Oh, yeah.